In order to be a stand-up comic, first of all, it takes an enormous amount of time to find your voice. The one thing about stand-up is they're my words, and that I felt like I have. Con- that's the one thing I have control over. Um, even like in acting, I mean, it's somebody else's words. There's a director. Uh, there's production. I mean, it really to be a stand-up, it is the tr- one of the truest forms of the entrepreneurial spirit. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Endorphins. This week, I am so thrilled to have Ellen Karras, otherwise known as the Greek goddess of comedy, on the podcast. Ellen is a stand-up comedian, having performed all over North America, and she has a new special coming out on Drybar Comedy. Ellen's also an actress and has appeared on numerous TV shows and movies. She was in Tina Fey's movie Sisters and plays a waitress on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel for the last three seasons. She also has a weekly podcast called Karis's Comedy Corner, available on iTunes, and Ellen is also the author of the children's book called Special People, Godparents and the Orthodox Christian Faith that's available on Amazon. In this interview, Ellen shares how she first got into comedy after working in the corporate world for many years, the art of humor writing in her own personal craft. We also talk about the Chris Rock and Will Smith incident at the Oscars this year. Ellen has a very interesting perspective to share on this and the relationship between comedy and our mental health. We discuss the role humor plays in creating relationships and connections with other people and how comedians grapple with their own mental health through the process of writing jokes, reflecting on their own life experiences, being vulnerable on stage and sharing their own experiences in a way that's relatable yet also very entertaining. Super excited for y'all to hear this interview. Before we get into it, I have a brief message from my sponsor, Inker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ellen, it is such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled. We've known each other for quite some time in the Greek community. And, you know, I know we spoke about this previously on your podcast. It's just so funny how at least 10, 15 years have passed and we're sitting here today with our own podcast talking about everything related to comedy, the Greek Orthodox faith, like everything we've been up to over the past 15 years. I have to tell you, I had such a great time talking to you. I won't even say it was an interview. It was just a great conversation. You are so wise beyond your years. And to see you grow up to be such a fine young lady. Your parents, as I mentioned on my podcast, and I'll say it on this podcast, I adore. They just were, they're great. They were just so committed to you and and just loved you and were proud of you and supportive and did the parental thing um, that they needed to do to help you be successful, uh, which, which most of the time is not easy. So um, I just I just loved it, and and now to to see you morph into uh, a, a professional, a podcast host, a consultant, a yoga teacher, uh, a, a just an everyday I want to spread good cheer person is really is just is great is great, and of course, you know, it, it, for people that are Greek will understand this. For people that are not Greek might not, but uh, of course, other e- ethnic groups sometimes feel the same way. But you know, there is a connection. So there's a connection with our ethnicity. There's a connection with our church, our religion. So it's it's great. It's fun. It's good. It, these these are the these are the things that you're grateful for. Thank you. And you know, it's like I always say it's like Jewish geography. There's a strong Greek geography. There's a tight knit <laughs> Greek community. It, it's a deep bond. And, you know, thank you. Shout out to Elena and George. Love the parents. Um, I think we had like a five minute like Elena and George fan club at the beginning of our 
chat on your podcast. Um, but I, you know, we're not here today to talk about them, even though I could talk about them forever. We are here today to talk about you and all that you do. And you're so accomplished and successful. And I love that you're a comedian because I love going to comedy shows. I somehow won like, I don't even like three free tickets, I guess, to the comic strip on the Upper East Side when I was in high school. Like my dad kept getting phone calls from them saying like, hey, you've got we can offer you like 15 uh, tickets where you don't have to pay the entry fee. You just have to pay the two drink minimum. So I remember him just being like, yeah, Stella, you can take these tickets, bring your friends. And I got like 15 of my friends from high school. We went like two or three times and we were at the comic strip and it was just such a fun time. And there's something really special about the experience of being, you know, in a crowd, watching people do stand up, tell jokes, being together, like it's a really fun energy. And so I think like the viewer perspective is quite different maybe than the comedian perspective, but I would love for you to share a little bit about how you got into comedy and also what it's like to perform stand up and, you know, you've been doing it for so many years now. Like how has that evolved throughout your lifetime? So the comic strip, funny that that is the club that you mentioned, is the club, the place that I went to, to learn how to write comedy the first time. So it's a very special place. Uh, I'm a regular there. I love that club. It is the oldest comedy club in New York City. It's got a lot of history. I'm so glad that it is managed to survive uh, all of the challenges that, that, that aside from you know the, the one that we just went through, the COVID challenge, and then you know all the other cycles uh, that that they've gone through in the last forty years, or it's a, it's a, I think it's like forty three years now. It's open, so it's funny that you mentioned that. No, no, no coincidence. Um, I will backtrack. I was raised in a, you know, the typical Greek family, typical traditional. Um, I, my parents are great people, great people, love them, love everybody, all that quirky, crazy, quirky, you know, but you love them anyway, of course. And, and um, I think I always had in me that performer. I certainly was the type of person that I wanted to make everybody happy. Um, but I did like to just, you know, little girl, you know, do my own little thing, dance around, put on music, dolls, the whole bit. So I had, I, you know, I had that, that part in me. Um, but I also watched a lot of television when I was a kid, like now it probably like my parents would have been reported, but back then it was normal to stick your kid in front of a TV. So my mother could talk on the phone for four hours. And, um, so I think that, that, that I, I know that that was a big influence and I used to watch, I love Lucy reruns with my great grandmother. My great grandmother loved Lucille Ball. And, uh, so I, I know that that was a, a big thing. And then like, you know, Carol Burnett and Mary Tyler Moore and, you know, like all these. I wish I knew we're from different generations. <laughs> so sadly I can't relate. But I, I wish I knew. Well, there is, uh, you know, YouTube and MTV and or MeTV, I think it's called MeTV. But anyway, I get it. And the, you know what? Honestly, the humor it, to me, I think, is a bit different now. I think that back then you could be much sillier. I think I don't. I feel sometimes co things that are called comedy are like serious. But anyway, we, we can get to that. We can get to that. So, long story short, college, of course. I got an accounting degree. I, I math was a strong suit of mine. I love business. I had an uncle that was a CPA. I'm like, he did well. I'm like, okay, I want to do that. You know, it's fine. And it was all fine. I did it. No regrets. But just get back to the Greek parents. Even if I was able to express myself to say, hey, I want to be an actress, comedian, that wasn't going to fly. Okay. In our house. Okay. I, I, you know, Eleni and Tassos were not going to like go for the, what do you mean you're going to be an actress? So, so that was never there. And I never said anything about it ever. And I wouldn't I didn't even think about it. Got my CPA, got my MBA in finance, all great, Wall Street, fun time. Again, no regrets. And then finally, I remember thinking, all right, I've got my educational 
degrees, my accolades. This is great. I'm immersed in this. I need something. I need to express myself. And I remember sitting in meetings, business meetings, and you're, you know, you're a little part of this world too, so you know, and people were so dry and were so serious. And I remember I think that that one of the triggers was like somebody was talking about, I don't know, a journal entry, I, you know, a report or something. And they were talking about it like somebody needed a blood transfusion. And I'm just like, this is, I mean, I I understand you have to have reports and, and, you know, it's a, but it's a public company. I, I like, I get all that, you know, I get all the high level, low level, middle level, I get it. But it was just, it was just like, I don't know if I can keep a straight face anymore and talk about accounts payable. Like, I don't think I could do this anymore. Or I wanted to at least do something different. I need a diversion. I want to write. I've got stories in my head. Um, I've had experiences in life. So I decided to take an improv class at the new school. And I loved it. It So once a week, I, I mean, I remember just like the teacher saying, uh, pretend like you're putting on mascara, use your imagination. I mean, just simple things like that. But it was just a part of my brain that got tapped into that was, it's almost like there was dust on it. And I went, and then all of a sudden, like it got clean, you know? Uh, so anyway, I did the class. I loved it. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep going. And I took an acting class. And then I in one acting class morphed into another. I did scene study. I did commercials. At the time, there were soap operas around. I took a soap opera class. All these things that were just so new and exciting. And I do. I did always love theater. I always. I lived, grew up in New York City. I love theater. I love live performances. To me, there was nothing like going into a theater. And uh, I, I did. I did go see comedy. I wouldn't say I went to a lot of comedy, but at that time, there were a lot of comedians that were doing uh, that had their own sitcoms at that time. So, again, long story short, I was studying with this teacher. Her name is Penny Templeton. I will always give her credit for the rest of my life. And I studied for her with her for about two years. And I would say about a year into it, uh, she would have us do. For the class warm up, she would have us do do something that was happening in our lives, like improv something from our life. And at the time, my sister, one of my sisters was getting married. And every week I would come in and I would talk about my sister's wedding and, you know, the Greek thing, the drama, this and that, who Yaya's got her list of people to invite. You know, the whole thing it was crazy. Every, and I wasn't even getting married. I was just sucked into the vortex. So I would, you know, act this out and she would laugh. And then so a year into studying with her, she said to me, one day she goes, uh, uh, I hope that you're talking about your Greek family in your stand-up. And I go, I don't do stand-up. And she goes, this is what she said. She goes, get some. Just like that. So I remember that night I got into the cab. I went home and I was like, oh my God, I stand up. Wow. Maybe if I do stand-up, I can get a sitcom. Because that was that became my goal. I wanted to get a sitcom. So, and all the stand-ups had sitcoms at that. Roseanne and Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Romano and Kevin James. And so I went to the comic strip. I found it in backstage and ad. They were giving a eight-week writing class. I went to the class and it wound up being just me and the and the comic, whose name is D.F. Sweetler, who t to this day still teaches comedy there. And by the way, looks exactly the same. I'm like, D.F., can I borrow your time machine? I can't believe it. But anyway, um, and, and you know, it's interesting when you learn a new craft, I, it's such an, it's so important that some of the things people tell you that good advice really sticks to you. Like I remember DF saying to me, so it was one of the first things I learned. He goes, write, write clean because you, you can always make clean dirty. Don't write dirty because you can't reverse it. One of the first things, and it stuck in my brain. Um, and I remember taking a hosting class and somebody saying, uh, Eddie Brill actually was the instructor there. He used to warm up for Letterman. And he said, she goes, you know, if you perform and there's just a small audience, don't take it out on everybody else. Pe those are the, don't take it out on the people that came to see you. It's the people that didn't come to see you. Don't You give them a good show, even if it's just two people. So, you know, again, like some of these 
I, I'm so grateful for some of these these pieces of advice that I got early on. But anyway, that started it, and I, I my I'll never forget my you know first time on stage, five minutes, maybe one joke, maybe thirty seconds was mildly funny, you know, I you know, and it just kept going. And I did, I went to open mics. Uh, there was a whole thing with you have to take do these bringer shows where you bring your friends. I dragged every single person that I, I knew over the years. Finally, you have to like stop doing that. Um, it's been a really, really long road, but um, I'm in, I'm, I'm way in it. And I mean, now, I, you know, the frustration is that I represent myself and I have to get everything myself. And I, I feel like the missing piece is really having that good representation, like that good booker to be just like, okay, here's your schedule. And I'd be like, oh, that's so nice. Right. Wow. Ellen, I have so many questions and comments from this amazing like monologue of your your journey and your career. So first of all, I think it's really fascinating to see how you went from pursuing accounting and getting your MBA in finance, like very corporate immersed into now fully creative. And I think one, it goes to show that it's really special to be able to do both, like to be in a very corporate environment, but also have a creative passion double threat, triple threat. I think that's so awesome. And it also goes to show that, you know, it's never too late to explore other passions or try out things that may be kind of like the wake up call. Like you said, it was like dust was on your brain and then you just, it like it cleared. Like it's never too late to try things that kind of spark an endorphin or a joy in your life. Like recognizing that throughout the course of your life, there are going to be so many opportunities you may be presented with and you might surprise yourself with trying out different things and finding different things to be interested in. And that kind of shapes your own story, which I find to be really fascinating and definitely such a role model for me. And I also want to talk a little bit about the experience of you starting out at the comic strip doing this comedy writing class. I really want to hear more about this because my sophomore year of college, I took a humor writing class. I was a creative writing minor. And I took this class because I don't consider myself to be very funny. And people definitely laugh like when I say things, but it's always confused me whether or not they're laughing with me or at me. So I don't think that I'm that funny of a person. And I wanted to take this class because I wanted to figure out, well, like, how can I actually be funny? Like, I can never pick up on sarcasm. That's like one of my fatal flaws. <laughs> and I I just wanted to learn, like, what is the art of humor writing? And something that really stuck with me was how comedy is really about, like, the element of surprise. Like, that's kind of what gets you going. And to be honest, you know, like, it was a difficult class for me because I really had to push myself out of my comfort zone, like, figuring out how do I actually write something that's funny? Like I had thought about a few experiences in my life that when I look back on it now, like it's hilarious that like there are certain things that I got away with growing up in New York City that I wrote about that I thought was hilarious, but it was so hard to translate like a narrative in my head onto paper and then like present it to a class. Like that was really difficult for me. And it's so funny that you know, we're talking about humor writing today because I was on a call earlier for work and we were talking about the concept of like the benign violation theory, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is, you know, I have a picture of it right now. I'm looking at it. And it's the concept that humor only occurs when three conditions are satisfied. So a situation is a violation. The situation is benign and both perceptions occur simultaneously. And when you're hitting that middle ground, it's like, oh, that's really funny. That's a funny joke. So I don't know if this was something maybe you learned back in the day when you were doing comedy writing or if there's anything else that really stuck out to you when you were learning how to actually write comedy and then transition into performing stand-up. When I was your age, you know, and younger, I don't think I was funny. I, I, I was always animated, that, but that didn't mean that in school, I was not the class clown. People automatically, you know, go to that. No way. And I will never forget. I've never said this out loud. When I was a freshman, I, I moved from the city. I was a city kid and we moved to the suburbs. Uh, I went from Greek parochial school to uh, a, 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 a high school 
that had 2000 kids. I was the only Greek. And there was one person that was half Greek. And, and although he said to me, uh, I was raised Catholic and, and, and he walked away from me really, really snobbily. So, uh, with that said, (laughs) with that said, I, I don't know what possessed me. I had, I had made a, a, a few bunch of good friends, uh, to run for treasurer of my class which is again, hilarious. I went from this little Greek parochial school to this huge high school. Anyway, I remember we had to give a speech about, uh, you know, a, a campaign speech and everybody got up there, you know, the, whoever was running for president, this and that. And the, there was a girl that ran against me for treasurer and she got up and she, you know, she grew up there and she was an A student, smart, and she was very sexy. I mean, even in the ninth grade, she had this like wispy, almost like a Marilyn Monroe voice. It's like, whatever. And then I, I will never forget, I got up there and I, I, I almost fainted. I didn't even know what to say. I was shaking. I didn't even know what I was saying. And I got, you could hear a pin drop, a pin drop. And I would say, let's say there was 600 kids in my class. I think I got 30 votes and she got the rest. And it was funny because later on, I couldn't even hate her. She turned out to be a really, really nice girl. And I really liked her. So I think that helped me get over it. You know what I mean? But I think it, I think it stuck with me. And again, I never, th- I don't think about it that often, but now we're kind of talking about it. And I just kind of, I want to bring it back to like when I was young, because I want you to know how this was not me. Um, but again, watching TV, watching those roasts, watching the variety shows, uh, watching late night, you know, all that stuff definitely had an influence in in me. And my, actually my dad is very funny. Um, and everybody's, you know, little flippant and sarcastic, you know, in their own way. I mean, Greeks are funny people for the most part. And some of them don't realize how funny they are. Uh, so I didn't know any of that, but I, I will say for me, and I think in general, in order to be a stand-up comic, first of all, it takes an enormous amount of time to find your voice uh, and to find the writing. And, and I, I'm always writing. We're always doing. And, you know, all these new jokes start out as, a, you know, not great and you massage it or you cut it. Or at some point, you have to let it go if it's really not working um, or turn it around. I've twisted so many things. I've had, you know, all prem. Usually, what happens is the jokes start out to be really long, and by the time you're done, it's ten words. I will say, audiences, the attention span of an audience, certainly, you know, in today's environment, is that of a mosquito. It's about thirty seconds, maybe thirty-five. So, so you do have to kind of get to something quickly, or whatever you're saying you better hold that their the audience's interest it better continue to be interesting as far as writing uh the one the great thing about taking this class and again it, had i not taken the class none of this would have happened because i wouldn't have known what to do or anything um was that you know they do try to help you with a structure uh the, you know the punchline goes at the end uh, you know, the th- funny things in threes, just, you know, there's, there's, there are, there's certain guidelines and things, again, getting to something quicker. If it's a longer bit, that punchline better be really, really, really funny. Having a thread, the segues, it is a true art form. And uh, I mean, it's like being a chef, you know, putting all these ingredients together. And, you know, here I am 20 years later, fast forwarding, so I just did, right before we went on, I just did a, a Zoom show. That set and some of my cadence was different from on Sunday, I did a show for a mother and daughter tea party group in Westchester. And, the, and you know, and then, and then the set that I did at Broadway Comedy Club on Sunday night had a sort of a different rhythm. You know, I mean, some of my jokes are the same. I sometimes I call it spice it up, which which why I, I mean by cursing, you know, or using naughty words. Uh, when I do a Greek show, a Greek or, you know, show for our churches or Hellenic organizations, you know, those are really clean. It takes a long time and it also takes a lot of crappy shows and a lot of bombing to get to where you need to go. 
great point because I wanted to ask, what do you do when a joke doesn't land with the audience? Like some, you know, comedians, I think, draw from their own personal experiences when they're writing jokes. Like it's very much like their own stories and their own life experiences that they're quite self-deprecating about. And that's, I think, what makes it funny. Like they're, they're trying to relate to the audience in some way or they're trying to make the audience feel like they're relatable. And so if you're being super vulnerable and you you share a joke with the audience and it doesn't land, like how do you take that? Because you can't you can't hide from your your reaction. You know, it's it's live, you're in front of an audience, they're watching you. That's really terrifying. So what do you do in that moment? Stand-up comedy is you, the audience, and the mic. That's it. <laughs> so it is the most raw art form there is. So at this point now, because uh, you know, I consider myself a vet. Uh, if something doesn't land, I will either make a joke about the fact that it didn't land and wind up saying something funny about the fact that it wasn't funny, uh, or I'll just move on, depending on what's the, my timing, where I want to go, what I know the next joke is going to be that's going to sort of go back to that one. You know, it, it, it really all depends kind of on in, in the moment. When I was more of an inexperienced comic, when I was five years into it, you know, seven years into it, I just tried not to get rattled and then and move on. So now, you know, not that I love it, but I don't get rattled. I know that I'm going to go on to something else or I'm going to make fun of it or I'm going to say something or I'm going to now do a tag for that or, or something. You know, so I, one of the th things a lot of us say is, oh, that was so much funnier in my head. Um, but so I'm, I, it happens. It happens. I'm confident enough to know that my whole set isn't going to be horrible. You know, it's just this one blip. And I know when I get to something else, it'll be fine. I, so, so I'm confident that I'm going to get out of it. I don't even think about it as much as, you know, obviously I used to, but, but you have uncomfortable moments and certainly I've done so many different comedy shows and so many different venues. I I've done places let me tell you where one of the worst places is when a restaurant decides, and I won't of course do this anymore, or I ask a billion questions before I do it. When a restaurant decides to like throw comedy. So they just have people coming to eat and then they've got a comedy show, but the people that came to eat didn't come for your comedy show. They came to eat like, you know, not everything. It, it, it's gotta be set up. So people know they're coming to see comedy. Cause when you force feed it down people's throat, that's like the worst. So I've had, you know, those experiences, but I just kind of want to get back to you. And you were saying that you're not funny and this and that I've been on shows where sometimes people try to mentor teenagers, you know, you know, as comics and stuff. I don't find 15 year olds, you know, in terms of stand up funny, they should be performing for their age group, um, you know, and 20 year olds, because you just don't have enough life experience so I think that comics that are like 30, not that there aren't any in their 20s that aren't funny, but, you know, I think it's the type of thing that, you know, you really will hit your stride. Like, even if you're doing it in your 20s, it's not going to be until your 30s where where it's going to it's going to like land. I think you have to have life experience. I, I Very, very, very few stand ups. Um, uh, came out of the gate very funny. The one that comes to mind is Eddie Murphy. I think Eddie Murphy was Eddie Murphy by the time he was 18. You know, that's very, 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 uh, very unusual. You know, Chris Rock, Chris Rock was very young when he started. Uh, but, you know, his first special was when he was like 32, 33, but he had been doing it since he's 15. You know, so people don't understand. Seinfeld too. Seinfeld didn't get Seinfeld till he was 35. And he had been doing comedy since he was 20. So you you got to put in the time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> I get a lot of comedians that just pop up on my TikTok, on my like for you page on TikTok. And they're in their 30s, I would say, or late 20s. And the the, the comedy bits that they're show that are showing up on my feed feels relatable because I think it's to a very specific and targeted audience. Like 20 something year olds. And so from the what feels like long life experience I've had but it's really short when you put it into perspective of like the entirety of my what my life will be um you know 
their points really resonate. And I think it also has to do with the TikTok algorithm, spitting out content it knows I want to see. But in general, I would agree with you. Like the older the comedian, it, like the more life experience if they've accumulated, it, the better content will arise from that because there's more that they can draw from. I want to make a quick comment because I know you brought up Chris Rock. And obviously, this is a very timely interview, an episode. Um, whoever's listening, hopefully you watch the Oscars and hopefully you know what we're referring to when we talk about this. But that was a very heated moment, what happened where Will Smith slapped, almost punched Chris Rock. I know you posted something about this on your Instagram. I don't know if you want to share a little bit um, on my platform about what happened, your thoughts on that, and just kind of where there may be a fine line, you know, just tension within like the the comedy space. You know, can we talk a little bit about what happened there and that dynamic? Oh, absolutely. I have no problem saying what I think about it because it it's it was it was so appalling. It was so disgusting. Um, uh, obviously, like everybody else, I, I, well, I was out at Broadway Comedy Club, so I didn't watch it live, but it's, I, I recorded it. Plus, I wanted to see the, the hosts, um, Amy and Wanda, are stand-ups. So I definitely wanted to see how, how they were going to do it, and I thought they did great. But um, And then I was on the subway, and I'm you know, looking at my Instagram and, and Facebook, and I was like, did you see that? Was that real? Was that? So I came home. And, and actually I didn't even bother going to, cause it was still recording, you know, going to the DVR. So I asked my husband, we looked it up and popped right up on YouTube. And of course we kept rewinding and rewinding. Like, did I just see what I, I can't believe it. At first I thought it was fake. And then it was like, no, no. And then to see Will's face and the cursing, that is very scary. And I felt, first of all, for, for Chris, you can see after he got smacked, the stunned look on his face and his brain was just going like, do I just, you know, like, I think he was just trying to calm himself in his, in his brain because as a comic, he could have buried him verbally right then and there. That would have been the end. Will Smith would have left crying if Chris Rock was able to unleash himself. But the guy kept his composer, Big kudos to him, uh, but and the, and and by what Will did, I felt now emboldens. Obviously, not everybody, but there are crazies out there. They're going to feel like that's going to be okay, and we're already facing cancel culture, saying something people don't like. Comedy is absolutely subjective. I absolutely get that. I Some people, listen, some people love me. Some people can't stand me. I get that. I understand that. Some people think I'm hilarious. I'm so, some people don't. I get that. That's totally fine. That's life. But to have him do, to get up out of his seat, to approach the stage, even approaching the stage is not a good thing. That's, you know, that's happened. And by the way, for the majority of us that do shows all over, and we, I do a lot of private stuff as well and fundraisers and all this. I don't know who's in the audience and, you know, there's no security. There's no one there to protect me. Um, I mean, I mean, I'll be completely honest with you. I've been to some clubs. There's no security. There's nobody to be found. So, so that's a whole nother thing. I know that there's going to be copycats because with everything crappy, there's always these stupid copycats. And even if one comedian gets hurt, that's one too many for that reason. Now, as far as Jada and her alopecia, and I don't give a crap, okay? I'm so done with her. But honestly, both of them, not that I paid that much attention, but they were always popping up in the news, their marriage, their this, their that. First of all, you cannot be a private person and then tell everybody every friggin' thing that's going on in your life. That's not private, okay? I like Jennifer Lopez, but she, she does this, I'm a private person. You're not a private person. Okay. They're not, you're far from a private, stop saying you're private. You're not private. Jada and Will, just as an aside, like they've just become very weird. You know, the, the, they did the, the table talk thing. And then they, then they, they talked about, you know, she, she cheated, he cheated, this and that. Aside from the fact like, why are you telling everybody who cares? But so you put, you kind of put yourself out there, but 
anyway, they're sitting there, they're in the front row and he says something. And if you notice also, Chris says, Jada, I love you. Like he didn't go mean. He thought he was making a joke. I, I, I'm pretty sure, although I don't know this for sure, the Academy generally has to review all of the jokes. So I don't know if that was an impromptu thing or that they said that it was okay. That I don't know. That's a, that is definitely a question. Not that it's going to really matter that much. And then we all saw it. He laughed first. Will laughed and then he looked at her and then something triggered him and he went up there and let's mention Will Smith is six, four. Chris Rock is like five, two. So that's a whole nother thing. I don't know how hard, I mean, we all heard the smack in the microphone. I mean, that was really, that was like, that's jarring. I can't even look at this anymore. So my first concern is for my brethren, our safety and for people that don't, you know, don't, that not going to like a joke and going to think that it's okay to just approach the stage. Uh, and, and, you know, heckling is one thing, but, and that, and, and, and I'll tell you what I do with that too. I, I, so listen, I am not a controversial comic. I really just want to make everybody happy. That's my purpose. But I'm not going to say I don't, I love going in the audience and I'll always like poke fun and make fun. And I have a pretty good gauge in seeing if somebody is annoyed um, and not, and, and, and I'm not this like huge, big, um, scary person, you know, scary looking person. And I always try to say it with like a wink and stuff. So, so from my own experience, I really haven't had too much. I haven't had really any too much of that. I've had people talking, but I'll just blow through it because my feeling is that's not my responsibility to go shush people. That's who's ever running the show. But with that being said, you know, certainly Will had every right not to like the joke or she had every right not to like the joke, but that on, that's not even national TV. That's international TV. That video is going to stay there forever and ever and ever. Chris Rock is going to be fine. He's going to come up with some material. He's he he's going to do fine. I'm not worried about him per se as a you know his career and all that. Both these guys have more money than you and I will ever see in our lifetime. Even if nobody hires Will Smith again, he's fine. Um, but what should have happened is. After the party, you take it outside. Hey, you dissed my wife, whatever. Whatever happens, happens. But to do it there, it's just not the way that you do it. I know Tiffany Haddish said something about, oh, that was great. He defended his woman, which I'm very disappointed. I, I don't know her. Uh, she has a great career. God bless. But but you're a, you're a comic, although she's very connected to Will and Jada. And I think she's part of that road trip. So I, I, I wish she just didn't say anything because that like upset me too. It's like co mo every comic for the most part has, you know, has said that is, it was awful and it was disgusting. And I do not think that Will Smith should get his Oscar taken away as much as pissed off as I am. Uh, I don't because he did that work and, you know, I just don't. I, I just think one thing had nothing to do with the other. What I got out of that is he had a very good feeling that he was going to win the Oscar and he was not going to miss that moment. And he got his moment. And as a matter of fact, in some ways, it kind of worked in his favor because he was really slobbering. I mean, I'm not quite sure how he would have felt had he not, they not had that, but he was really slobbering and he, and he used it. And the fact that everybody got up, I mean, standing ovation, I mean, okay, that's fine. He got applause. I get that. But like standing ovation, like that really pissed me off. And, and Will Smith, his ego is so big. He, speaking of Eddie Murphy, although he's a great comedian, but I remember Eddie Murphy being mad because he didn't get the Oscar for Dream Girls. And if you remember, he left the Oscars after uh, his category. Will Smith is still pissed off that he didn't get, he didn't get the Oscar for Ali. I'm totally convinced of that. So he's already has like a chip on his shoulder as it is. It's a shame. Will Smith is very talented. Uh, he's done a lot of great work, Men in Black, Page. I mean, he's very funny. I, I'm, I'm not, I can't take that away from him. Uh, and I'm not saying his whole body of work should be erased for that. But it was, he, I, I want to see Will Smith come out and go, what I did was effed up and don't you dare do that. Uh, I, I regret it. Like, I want to see that remorse. But what we see are pictures of him dancing with his Oscar. So... 
it's it's not good. Yeah, it's clearly you have very strong opinions about this, as you should, especially being a comedian. And I think, yeah, you know, the primary issue or, or I think thing that might scare comedians in the future on top of cancel culture, like you mentioned, is now like their threat for their safety, like a safety concern. That's really scary. And, you know, now I feel like comedians are like, okay, how far is too far with my jokes? Like, is this going to really piss off a crowd? Is this really going to piss off someone in the crowd? Now there's like this precedent, it feels like that's been set from Will's behavior, which is scary. And I agree. I think it was wrong for him to do that. And you mentioned something about Chris Rock's like demeanor completely changing. Like you could see the wheels were turning and he was like, I thought he did a really good job of calming himself in the moment. Like maybe he was just too stunned to do anything, but like that was a really great example of really thinking fast on your feet and doing something like whatever he did to like tap back into like that sympathetic nervous system, or I'm always forgetting which one is fight or flight, but, but tapping into the non fight or flight, the one that calms him down. Um, and just taking a moment to like recollect himself and not even really like address that and move on. That was really admirable to see. And, it's unfortunate that, you know, Will, something triggered in him that just violence erupted. Like that was just really, really frightening. And like I was stunned. Like <laughs> my computer or my TV went blank or and like the audio stopped working because I think the U.S. censored it. And I, I was like, wait, what's going on? I was watching it with my parents and it just was I Googled immediately what just happened at the Oscars. And then like there were a million Google searches what just happened at the Oscars. So it was very crazy. And, um, you know, thank you for sharing your perspective because I find it very interesting to see, you know, to hear the more elaborate version behind the Instagram post that you shared. But pivoting a little bit away from that whole disastrous event at the Oscars, I want to talk a little bit more about the relationship between comedy and mental health because, like we talked about earlier, comedians draw from their own life experiences and, there's an element of self-deprecating jokes to, to, you know, to humor, ways of just making light of really serious situations. And I think that's a way to actually process experiences and move past them. So I'm wondering in your life, you know, where you draw your inspiration from in your comedy and how has this creative endeavor that you've tapped into helped you with your own mental health and, you know, to process certain experiences that you've had in your life? It definitely has allowed me to have uh, a voice for myself. And like I said, and not to sound all Pollyanna, but really to make other people happy. And I delved into uh, stand-up comedy. I took that class and everything in like 98, 99. And, um, and then a couple of years later, 9-11 happened. And I was working downtown and I was walking to work when it happened. Uh, right. I was right on that uh, plaza. Uh, and not to get into all the details, but obviously all, all horrendous. And, uh, you know, I was, I mean, physically I was fine, thank God. And, you know, that was, but as, I mean, you don't remember, but for all of us that do, it was a, just, a, a, just such a dark, 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 dark time. And a year later, I went, nine months later, I tried to go back and do some stand up. And again, I was still really at a lower level and, you know, a, a, a elementary level and I couldn't do it. And then finally, like, I don't know, a year, it was probably like until 2003. And then I was, and I, I went someplace and, and I opened mic or something. I'm like, you know what, this is a dream. And I just saw how life was so short, like, you know, one minute you're walking to work or one minute people are at their desk, the next minute gone. So it was, it was definitely a moment of like, oh my, we don't know. We don't know what the next minute is going to bring. And, and it doesn't have to be obviously something of that magnitude. And, uh, and then I did, I made a commitment to try it, to just give it my all. Because I never wanted to say I didn't try. 
And, uh, and that's when I went more full force. And then later on, I found, you know, I, I joined a writing group and, you know, I was just out. I mean, I had to go out at night, obviously, you know, you meet other comedians. There's no human resources, by the way. I mean, you just got to go out to clubs and rooms and wherever they're doing comedy and meet other people and talk and did a lot of networking things. And, um, and, uh, so I definitely think that, having had that experience and just other things that I've had, uh, you know, obviously in my own life and, 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 you know, deaths and disappointments and whatnot, it definitely helped me because I felt like it was the one thing, even though, even though I complain about how I want to be booked more and stuff, but it's, I, the one thing about stand up is they're my words. And like, I felt like I have, con- that's the one thing I have control over Uh, Even like in acting, I mean, it's somebody else's words, there's a director, uh, there's production. I mean, it really, to be a stand-up, it is one of the truest forms of the entrepreneurial spirit because it is your own business. You're selling you. There's no product. You're the product. So there's so much that that goes into it. So back to mental health. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I haven't had any serious mental health issues, but I've certainly have had anxiety. I've, I've, I've had the hyperventilation where I have to like blow into a paper bag. You know, I've had panic attacks. I mean, I, I know all about that part of it. Full disclosure, you know, went to therapy and it was uh, great. And when you find a good therapist, I also had a few that, you know, I mean, if you don't connect, it's never going to work. But I, I had a couple of good ones and it was great. Um, and it definitely, you know, just helps you just, you know, think things through and think before you act and, you know, sort of think before you say, or think before you do things. You know, it's, it's called analysis for a reason. And I, and I realize you can go to the all, you know, to the other extreme and, you know, you got to live in the moment too and have a little fun. So again, it's taken me a long time, but, you know, you get a balance. I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life. And, uh, you know, to forgive yourself for those and, and, and not, you know, not repeat them. And, uh, so I definitely think it's, it's helped me. It's helped me because it was something that I really wanted to do. And that, and when you do something, you really want to do, it makes you feel good. And does it matter what it is? I mean, if you like to paint pain, if you like nature, you know, we, we, most of us work very you know, hard and traditional jobs. And a lot of people are in jobs they don't like, but the money's good. And I know I get all that. Uh, And if you love your job and it's an office job, that's great too. But, you know, you need like other things, you know, you need, you know, you need an outlet, whether it's cooking, whether it's being with your family and doing things. So um, I, I, I think it, it, it's, I think it's definitely helped and, but it's comedy and we can, comedians can be a bit morose uh, and I am very self-deprecating and I can, I've definitely gotten very uh, dark, not in a dangerous way, but just in a, you know, like now it's detrimental to me. And again, I, you know, you got to like pull yourself out of that, you know, and that's why you, I think you can't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, I think the best life lived, my opinion and my experience is a balanced life, you know, family, friends, fun, work, things that satisfy you, uh, you know, and again, that doesn't mean you're doing a thousand things at one time. Uh, My biggest problem in life is the focus because I do have a thousand things going on and I I jump from thing to thing to thing. That's the thing that I've been trying to learn for a long time, trying to write a book. I'm trying to write a play about my great grandmother, you know, and then just like I jump from thing to thing to thing. But I think it. I think when you when you have that and you really feel satisfied, and again, not every show is a great show. Trust me. Um, I, I, I have gotten in the car. I remember doing a, a bridal shower. It was actually for a Greek woman mother that hired me. This has got to be like seven years ago, and it was awful. It was awful, and uh, nobody laughed. They were talking um, and it was crazy because the mother was like, my daughter saw you and she thought you were like the funniest thing and she wants you at her shower, you know, so it was that kind of a setup and the mother was pissed and she's like, you, you weren't loud enough and you should have brought a microphone. It was crazy. I got in the car and I, I bawled, I bawled my eyes out. So, you know, but again, this is life. It's not always going to be. 
it's not always going to be rainbows and sunshine. You know, I do, I do do this thing. It, this, I'm pretty good at this. Even like when I'm really pissed at somebody, I'm really upset. I really, um, I try to give myself, especially with the shows, with the shows in particular, I give myself a 24 to 36 hour pity party. I allow myself to have that. I complain, I bitch, I moan, I curse, I give everybody the mati, I do the whole thing. Um, and then it, it's almost like a cleanse, but I allow myself that. I don't suppress it immediately because that doesn't work for me. Um, and, and then I'm, and I'm pretty good at moving on, you know, like I still remember it, of course, but I don't, it's the dwelling and it's the sucking of energy from, uh, from you. I'm glad you bring that up because I think <laughs> I've realized the value of actually just letting yourself experience whatever emotion like you have in that moment. It does you so much better to recognize it not judge that it's there and just let it be there, feel it, express it, whatever you have to do and get it out of your system. Like let it come out and then, you know, take the time to heal from it and move on. Like don't dwell in that. Give yourself whatever it is, 24, 36, 48 hours. Give yourself that time period. Recognize how you're feeling. Honor that. Respect that you're feeling that way. But recognize that feelings aren't going to be permanent. Feelings come and go. And the best thing you can do for yourself is to fully feel that and then recognize, okay, I've, I'm getting this out of my system. Do I need to keep staying in this space right now? Do I, I don't need to dwell in this headspace. Like I can move past it. And I think it's really healthy to just let that be a therapeutic outlet. Like recently I had a really like stressful experience and I – saw someone I didn't want to see. And I went home that night and I was like so emotional. And then I just, you know, the next day I was like, okay, I felt that way. I'm not going to like judge myself for feeling that way because it's normal. And then I'm just going to move past it. And I think that's a really healthy thing. I would hope so, a healthy thing to do. But, you know, you raised so many great points, Ellen. And I'm really fascinated by what you're doing because I am not a comedian in the slightest, nor will I ever tap into comedy because that's not something that I think I would be good at. But you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) With the creative writing part, I think is it's really where I can connect because for me, creative writing was always very therapeutic and it always it just it was a way for me to process how i was feeling and it's still something i do to this day just journaling and it's taken different forms for me and i think that just the act of getting pen to paper and figuring out how you want to translate what's in your head to something that's like concrete in and of itself allows you to realize things you didn't know existed and i think there's a lot of crossover between that creative process and what you're how you know how you craft a joke and how you perform a joke in front of other people. So um, it's something really fascinating to me and something that I feel like I can also relate to. But aside from all of that, Ellen, we're kind of coming towards the end of this interview. And I feel like I could ask you a million more questions. So we're probably going to have to do a part two. But (laughs) the one question I wanted to land on this episode with is something that I ask every single guest that comes onto the show. And it's about happiness, wellness, mental health, And, you know, you mentioned throughout this interview that comedy, you want to make other people feel good. You know, it's something that brings you joy and happiness. And I think, you know, there's the science around humor. It reduces pain. It reduces stress. Endorphins are a natural uh, hormone, you know, hormone that reduces pain naturally in our bodies. And comedy and humor, when you get someone to laugh, they feel good. It's an infectious energy. So my question to you is, besides comedy, (laughs) what is something that brings you a bit of joy and endorphins in your day-to-day life? I love working out, not because it's not a pain and I got to take an hour and, but I think it's very important and whatever your working out is, whether it's a walk, whether it's a stretch, you know, whether it's weights, whether it's high intensity, I think it's very important that you get, and this is for, I mean, you know, obviously again, I'm older than you are, but I, I wish I had my working out discipline when I was younger. Um, cause I think just physically look, mind, body, soul, it's all connected. 
and to get your just blood moving, you know, and, and, and get that energy going. I think that that definitely does something to you as far as get happiness. Uh, look, I'm like everybody else. You know what I mean? I love to be around friends and family. Well, family, when we're not fighting, but you know what I mean? For, you know, friends and a uh, good time and, you know, dinners. And I mean, yeah, I'm a little obsessed with food because I'm short and I'm Greek and, you know, it doesn't end well sometimes. Everything goes to the bottom. But I, but when I'm sitting and really like not letting go of that, and enjoying that, I love to eat. I mean, we, you know, it's in our DNA. Me too. And there's so many great Greek restaurants in New York. Like there's just a million places that I could go to too often. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I mean, so, you know, that, I mean, that it sounds simple. Sometimes it's just the simple stuff. I mean, I love going to the theater, of course. I love seeing a good show. Um, I, I, we don't travel as much as I would like. And obviously the last few years kind of put a kibosh on that, but, you know, traveling is great, exploring different places. I mean, my, my challenge with all of this is that Unfortunately, my mind is always going with, I got to do this. I got to do that. I didn't do this. I got to do that. I got to reach out to that, you know? So uh, again, it's all work in process, you know, trying to get better. I'm trying to like give myself a day or, you know, whether it's a Sunday, although the thing is with stand-up comedy, a lot of Saturdays I work, but like tomorrow, tomorrow I'm not. So I want to like give myself the day. You have to allow yourself the day to just let it go let the to-do list go and whatever's going to be, you know, is going to be sometimes just going to Whole Foods for an hour, you know, is fun. Uh, Yeah. Going to Whole Foods is always fun. Like I never want to leave when I'm at Whole Foods because I want to eat my way through it. And like, I also just love grocery shopping oddly. So (laughs) there's a million amazing things at Whole Foods. No, yeah, no, I totally. And they have like these great looking desserts, but um, sometimes you're, you're, to me, kicking in your endorphins could be about just like simplicity. Some, just something, you know, could be cutting ginger. You know what I mean? I think I I do meditate. I meditate every morning. I meditate 20 minutes before I get out of bed. I, I not great at the one later on in the day, but the one before, because it helps you again, gather your thoughts. I know all this is time. It's like, oh, it's got the time for this. You got to make the time. Even if it's five minutes to just lay in bed with your, you know, your visor on to just close your eyes, to just get your thoughts together. It like, you know, it gives you a good foundation, but you know, it, it, my thing I can find the biggest joy in, of course, you know, being on stage or it could be uh, completing a writing project that I had. I mean, I did this children's book. I mean, when I got the hard copy of this children's book, I I have it right here. I have it right next to me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, That was a great, you know, that was a great joy to see that to, you know, to fruition. I do want to say one thing because you have a younger audience. So when you're in your 20s, I know you think you're infallible and you can do this and you can do that. And I'm going to do something that's going to sound so mama bear. But, you know, listen, I like a glass of wine like the next person, you know, but there's a lot of substance abuse and there's a lot of stuff going on. And I'm going to tell you something, kids. All right. I, you know, I see it. It doesn't end well. So that stuff is just poison in your body. I'm not saying again, have a beer, have a glass of wine, have a cocktail. That's all well and good. But I I worry, you know, we live in New York City. I smell a lot of of stuff going on. It's not good. It's not good. It doesn't end well. I'm just telling you right now, you heard it here first. It doesn't end well. So all this to say, you do have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your body. You got to eat as well as possible. Not again, not be militant about it, but uh, you got to do the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, like you said earlier, it's about finding balance. I think it's all all about finding balance. And right now is definitely a difficult period of time in your 20s because there's a million things being thrown at every one of us and trying to find our way and trying to make a name for ourselves and this and that. And it's really overwhelming and it can be easy to fall into bad habits and bad patterns. But I think it's a great reminder that you share around just really taking care of your body and your mind will go a long ways in life. So let us be reminded by that. Ellen, it was just absolutely so fun having you as a guest on my show. Where can my listeners find you on social media? 
Instagram, uh, and it's hooked into Twitter, uh, at Greek Chick Comic. Also, Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook uh, page, fan page, Ellen Karras, Greek Goddess of Comedy. You can go to my YouTube page. My website is ellencaris.com, E-L-L-E-N-K-A-R-I-S.com. And I also have my podcast, which you were a guest on last week, and I loved it. It was so great. I got such great feedback. Uh, it's called Karis Comedy Corner. If you type in my name and it's on iTunes and, you know, all the other platforms. It's also on my website. I've been doing it for seven seasons. Uh, that also, I love, brings me great joy. Sometimes I have fantastic guests like yourself. Sometimes I do, like last week, I do a rant. So I'll do like a half hour show of just me and I will just rant. I use a lot of saucy words. I say whatever I want. It's my podcast. There's no FCC. Um, and that's it. Those are my thoughts. Well, everyone absolutely has to go check it out and follow along on your social media sites so that people can go and actually see you perform stand up. So that would be a really fun experience. That's something I still need to do. And now I'm like super excited for when I get to come and view your stand-up shows. Thank you again, Ellen. It was just such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And remember to like, rate, and review this podcast on whichever listening platform you prefer. Don't forget to keep spreading endorphins and find things that bring you endorphins every day. See you next time.